If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black pew Bibles in front of you. You're also welcome to pull out your phone and use Google, as long as you pinky promise not to go on Facebook while I'm preaching. So let me give you a brief review of where we are, how we've been approaching this. If you haven't been here, you, you might not see the connection, some of the ways that the points of this morning's sermon are going to connect to what we've said before. So let's just remember that Paul begins his letter by giving thanks for the Thessalonians. He's supremely thankful for them, and he says that he knows, that is, he's confident that the Thessalonians have been chosen by God, that they're loved by God in a special Way. And then he says, this is how we know. Number one, the power of the Holy Spirit was alive and well and active in my ministry when I came to you. And then also, I saw that same Holy Spirit alive and well and active in your life. Even as I left, we've heard good news and report of how powerfully the Spirit has been at work among you. Now, in verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul kind of push, pushes the pause button on his own ministry to talk about the Thessalonians. And then he picks that back up in chapter 2, and he unpauses that train of thought and begins to talk about the power of his own ministry. And so last week, we talked about the power of God in Paul's ministry that was evidenced by the boldness of his ministry. This week, we're going to be talking about two additional points. But the point that we said last week that we're going to be continuing for the next several weeks is we're going to be looking at the marks of a spirit-empowered leader. Paul says, I know that the Spirit was powerfully present with me in my ministry amongst you, and you know it too, because you saw it. And then as he begins to explain what his ministry is like, we see, oh, this is what a Spirit-empowered leader looks like, here, 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 and here. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Let me go ahead and read chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through uh, 8 for context. I didn't make that up on the spot. I don't know why I hesitated like that. Let's go ahead and read chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me as I read aloud. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much suffering. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Amen? This morning's sermon is going to be dealing with verses 3 and 4 of the verses we just read. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we will jump in. Father, your Holy Spirit must animate my words here today, Lord, if there's going to be any power present in this room, if there's 
going to be any change that takes place in our hearts. So, Father, I pray that not only would you prepare the hearts of, of the members of this congregation and the visitors here to receive uh, the words of life from you, but I also pray that you would season my speech. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, the name above all names. Amen. Okay, note takers, I've got two points for you this morning. Two points. Point number one. The spirit-empowered leader is trustworthy. Is trustworthy. Point number two. The spirit-empowered leader preaches the true gospel. The spirit-empowered leader preaches the true gospel. So point number one. The spirit-empowered leader is trustworthy. In the Victorian age of England, during the reign of King Henry VIII, there served in the king's court an ambassador of the Holy Roman Empire, one Eustace Chapuis. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Spanish is my second language, not French. Now, Chapuis was an enemy of Luther and the Lutherans, Zwingli and the Swiss Reformers, the Anabaptists. Really, he was an enemy of the Reformation as a whole. He worked for Charles V, who was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, very pro-Catholic, and so since his boss was pro-Catholic, he was pro-Catholic. Now, Chapuis served Charles in many ways during his time in England, but his main service as an ambassador for the majority of his career was in making an appeal to King Henry VIII to be reconciled to his wife, which he claimed to be his sister, Catherine of Aragon. I'm not going to get into the details, but it's all very politically and it's just very mixed up, as most things were in those days. But basically, the king was trying to wiggle his way out of a marriage. It was a no-go in those times. The emperor wasn't happy about it. He sends Chapuis as the ambassador, and Chapuis is just constantly in the king's ear trying to get him to reunite with his wife. Now, this sort of thing is what an ambassador does. A king cannot be everywhere at once. Even the kings that think themselves gods must recognize that omnipresence is not an attribute that they possess. So what kings typically do is they appoint trusted officials to go and serve as their mouthpiece abroad. Wherever the king's interest needs to be represented, there the ambassador goes and represents his interest. Now, this phenomenon is not unique to kingly rulers, of course. The United States, for example, has over 180 ambassadorial positions. And each one of these is charged with doing a number of different things like promoting national interests, maintaining diplomacy, organizing visits. Uh, In summary, though, ambassadors represent the President of the United States and his interests to the administrations of foreign nations and communities. So, I I don't understand what you just said, Sean. Basically, whatever the will of the president is, that is the appeal that the ambassador makes, whether he's in uh, Malaysia or Ireland or Uganda or Pakistan. That's what he does. Now, this is a very big deal to be appointed as an ambassador. Not just anyone is to be entrusted to speak for the king or to speak for the president or to speak for whoever. This is, you have to be trusted And that's the exact language that the Apostle Paul uses when he talks about his own ministry. You'll notice two words that he uses here that show that he is an ambassador. The first one is appeal. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. He says, For 
hour, now remember that hour, I'm, I'm only talking about Paul, but whenever I say Paul, just remember he's talking about himself and Silas and Timothy, okay? So he says, for our appeal does not spring from error. Now that word appeal there, that's the language of an ambassador. That's what Shapui was doing. That's what all ambassadors do. Paul explicitly links the usage of this word with his call as an ambassador in other scriptures. So take, for example, 2 Corinthians 5.20, a famous scripture. Most of you know it. Perhaps you've never considered it in this light before. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, right? He's our king from heaven. He sent us out to go do this, making his appeal through us. What is the appeal? He tells you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The king of heaven sends Paul out as an ambassador to appeal for people to come back home to God. So when the Thessalonians encountered Paul and his ministry among them, they did not encounter him as some lone range ranger preacher. They did not encounter him as some professional philosopher or some self-proclaimed spiritual guru that had some new insight into the human condition. No. The Thessalonians encountered Paul as a servant of the Most High King, as an ambassador of heaven. And in order to be able to do this, you have to be trusted. And that's the language that Paul uses in verse 4. Look there. After talking about how his ministry doesn't have any error or impurity or he's not trying to deceive anyone, in verse 4 he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul has been entrusted with the gospel. Now we're going to talk more about the content of the gospel that Paul has been entrusted with in point number two. For now, I just simply want you to note that as an ambassador, Paul is not the inventor of the gospel. The gospel did not originate with Paul. He is not the gospel's author, nor is he the editor of the gospel message. An ambassador has no authority to change the message that the king sends him to convey. He cannot change the will of the king as he communicates it. Right? One popular illustration of this is that of the paper boy. Do they even still have that anymore? I think I see some people like riding around throwing... Uh, you know, 40-year-old women throwing newspapers out of the side window of their car. But, may, but the, you know, the paper boy used to ride around on his bicycle and he'd throw paper. And when he would throw it on your front porch, his job was not to open up the newspaper and, like, underline stuff and circle stuff and cross stuff out and put little parenthetical comments. I disagree with this editorial. That's not what the job of the paper boy is. His job is to deliver the news as is. And that's how Paul understands himself as an ambassador to the Thessalonians. He is there as a representative of the king. He delivers the king's news and his interests. So, there's a problem with this illustration. A small problem. All illustrations break down at some point. Well, the illustration breaks down with the paper boy at precisely this point. The paperboy is merely interested in delivering the news. What you do with the news, he doesn't really care, right? You can open the paper, you can just take it like I see a lot of people do and just, that, like, you know, they've just never gotten around to canceling the newspaper so it still comes to their driveway every day for 20 years, they still haven't canceled it, and they just go and they throw it right in the recycling bin, okay? 
Or you can take it and lay it down as something for your dogs to pee on, right? Like the newspaper boy just doesn't care what you do with the newspaper. But that's not true of the Apostle Paul. He cares very much what those who hear his message have to say about it. He wants them to respond to his message. He's making an appeal for them. Be reconciled to God. Now, in order to understand why the Holy Spirit... Remember, the whole point here is that a Spirit-empowered leader must be trustworthy. Well, why is it important that this trustworthy leader be empowered by the Spirit? Why does it matter? Well, I've got two reasons why for you. So, note-takers, here are two sub-points for you. The Spirit-empowered leader needs the Spirit because conversion is a work of the Spirit. The new birth... Regeneration, to be born again, all phrases that mean the same thing. This is a work of the Spirit. And then number two, because the words of God are the only thing that can give us life. So let's look at this first subpoint that conversion is a work of the Spirit. In John chapter 3, Jesus uh, tells a man, Nicodemus, that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. Now, the man that Jesus said this to, Nicodemus, he didn't really understand what Jesus meant. He was like, how do you crawl back up in there? I don't understand how this works, right? Because he was thinking about it in a way that was different than the sense that Jesus was using this language. Now, what's funny about this is that Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus meant, and and many Christians today who identify themselves as born again still don't understand what Jesus meant when he talked about being born again. To illustrate that, I want to talk to you about the Barna Group. Maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't. They're an organization that does a lot of research into evangelical Christianity in particular. And uh, a number of years ago, they put out a survey where they were asking Christians all the different kinds of questions about what you believed about things like homosexuality or hell or the uniqueness of Christ and salvation. And they kind of just, they just ran through the gamut of basic historic Orthodox Christianity. And when they came out with the results of this poll and this survey, they, the results seemed to be scandalous. It was saying 54% of evangelicals, excuse me, 54% of born-again Christians say that you don't have to believe in Jesus in order to go to heaven. And 62% of born-again Christians don't see uh, hell as a literal teaching in the pages of Scripture. And born-again Christians don't agree with this and don't agree with that and don't believe this and don't believe that. Now, what's wrong with this? Well, the problem is that the people who issued this survey from the Barna Group, they're just using born again with your own assessment of your own spiritual condition. To them, born again is anybody who considers himself a Christian. It's kind of like the word evangelical. It's, it's more of like a, a, a phrase that we use to denote a polling block than an actual spiritual reality of your heart. But according to Jesus, born again doesn't just mean that you profess to be a Christian. It means that your heart has been changed by God. It means that he has given you the new birth. And friends, the new birth is not something that you can do for yourself. This is not something that you can accomplish. In the same way that you didn't request for your mom to give you birth, you cannot give yourself new birth from God. And Jesus has to explain that to Nicodemus. This is what he says to him. He says, Flesh is born of flesh, but spirit is born of spirit. Do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is basically saying your spirit needs to be reborn, and the only person that can do that is the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. So the ambassador of the gospel must be empowered by the Holy Spirit because it is only the power of the Holy Spirit that raises men from the grave. So as Paul makes his ambassadorial appeal, he has to remember that he cannot raise anyone from the grave. As he goes from Thessalonica to Berea to Corinth, on for the rest of his missionary journeys, he has to remember that in the same way an ambassador cannot make a king do something, he cannot make dead men come to life. The Spirit must move through him. Friends, let me close out this point by telling you that it is a misunderstanding of conversion that leads many ministers of the gospel to be found untrustworthy. Paul is trustworthy precisely because he understands his role as a servant, as an ambassador. He understands it's only my role to communicate, to appeal lovingly, winsomely, powerfully appeal, but it's only my role to appeal. But those who misunderstand conversion, they think that not only must they appeal, they must manipulate. And there's a variety of ways in which they do that. They try to alter the gospel. Well, listen, you know, Christ rising from the grave, you know, we know that those things don't happen. And if we're going to get people into the church and if we're going to get people being Christians, we have to modernize the gospel. We have to, we have to make it something that people in these times and these days can believe in. Well, that is an untrustworthy minister of the gospel. The gospel is powerful to save. The gospel was just as offensive 2,000 years ago as it is today. It was just as difficult to comprehend and wrap your mind around. Do you think people were just rising from the grave every day 2,000 years ago? Of course not. It was just as offensive and just as difficult 2,000 years ago as it is today. We don't have to change the gospel or alter the gospel in any way in order to call men to repentance and faith. Because ultimately, even if we present the gospel perfectly every time we share it with someone, the Spirit is still the person who has to change that person's heart and make them amenable to receiving what they hear. And even if people don't alter the gospel, they may be willing to undermine the gospel by preaching it through carnal means. Paul talks about this extensively in the book of 1 Corinthians. He talks about preaching the gospel through means that are more appealing to the wisdom of this world rather than the foolishness of the cross. You see this when people try to make the cross look cool, when people try to make Jesus seem hip, when they try to make the Christian faith seem like an all-expense-paid vacation, when they try to make the gospel seem like an answer to every one of your therapeutic problems. They're trying to make the gospel more appealing. My friends, the gospel is what it is, whether it's appealing to you or not. There are some parts of the gospel that are glorious, that are amazing, that when you hear it, it should make you long for home. They're sweet and savory and full of joy and celebration. And there are other aspects of the gospel that are really hard, like bitter medicine, like when the gospel tells us that we're sinners and we can't save ourselves, that repentance is the only hope for salvation. The gospel is fine just the way it is. And the foolish means of preaching the gospel 
That's what God has given us. So we don't need to undermine it by trying to adjust it or use any kind of carnal reasoning as we apply it to our evangelism. Friends, if you have the right understanding of conversion, then you understand that your job is to just go out and sow the seeds. Do you remember that, the parable of the sower? Right? There's four different kinds of soil. Each different kind of soil is somebody else's unbelieving heart. The evangelist goes out and he just sows the seed. He doesn't go, huh, I wonder if this ground is rocky. I don't wonder if there's thorn over here. I got enough seed to spare. I'm just going to throw seed anywhere and everywhere that I can. And I'm going to pray that while I wait, the Lord does something with it. The second subpoint: The words of God give life. And the second is not unrelated to the first. We've said that the Holy Spirit regenerates us. That is, he gives us the gift of new birth. But we have to ask the question then, how does the Holy Spirit regenerate us? Through what means? Well, he does it through the word of God. Through the preaching of the gospel. Through God's word coming to us. You see this, if you just read the story of the whole Bible, chronologically, you'll just see this over and over again. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham. And life is given to a new nation, the nation of Israel. The Lord speaks to Moses, calls him out of death, gives him his word for the people so that they can be sustained in life. The law is given to the Israelites. The word of the Lord is spoken over the dry bones in Ezekiel's vision, and they come to life. Jesus himself comes to us as the word. And when he comes, he says he comes to give us life. The word of God gives life to us. Now, when I share the gospel with someone, when you share the gospel with someone, how can we be sure that we know that what we're actually sharing is not just our ideas and opinions? How can we know that what we're sharing is actually the eternal truth of Jesus Christ? How do I know that it's just not my ideas, my errors, my preferences, my fallible understanding of the world? Well, the answer is is that the Holy Spirit empowers us our gospel preaching, our ambassadorial appeals. There's a couple of different places I could show that to you. You could see it in Matthew 28. Let me, for now, just show you in Matthew chapter 10, verse 20. Jesus, he's talking to his disciples about the persecution that they're going to have to suffer, okay? And he knows that they're probably afraid that when that moment comes, they're not going to be faithful. And this is what he says to encourage them. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So in verse 2, when Paul talks about making his gospel appeal in the midst of much conflict, the reason why he knows that he has the ability to make a gospel appeal that can actually save someone is because he knows that his words are not his own. His only hope as being an ambassador of Christ is that his words are not his own. His only hope as an ambassador is that he goes, as he goes, to open his mouth, that he's not just saying whatever Paul has to say. Because whatever Paul has to say is worthless. His hope is that as he goes to open his mouth in the midst of persecution, that the Spirit of God speaks through him. Friends, that's my only hope to you this morning. I've had a terrible week. I did a bad job preparing this sermon. Even if I had a perfect week and I did a phenomenal job preparing this sermon, still, what do I have to offer you of my own? What wisdom does Sean DeMars have to give this congregation? 
maybe I might have something significant to offer you, but probably not. I mean, not for you to get up on a Sunday morning when you could be sleeping in or doing something better with your life. Your only hope this morning and my only hope this morning is that I'm not up here giving you my words, but rather the words of Christ as the Spirit speaks through me. And as you go out and as you share the gospel with your friends and your family members and your coworkers, your only hope and your great confidence, brothers and sisters, your great confidence is that you are not communicating your own words, but that as you are being filled up with God's word, as God's Spirit lives in you, He's giving you exactly what you need to say. Now that does not mean that every person that you share the gospel with is going to be saved. It wasn't true of Jesus. Everywhere that Jesus went, he preached the gospel. Some people loved him and followed him. A bunch of people hated him and tried to kill him. Same thing was true of the apostles. You're not any different. I'm not any different. I stand up here. I'm telling you what I think God's word says in the Bible. A lot of people stick around and they go, oh, Sean, that was great. Some people go, I'm not coming back to that church. I can't control it. You can't control it. You just, worried about, you just worry about being faithful as an ambassador and trust that the Holy Spirit will empower your appeals. Amen? All right. Now, skip that page. Let's look at point two. Care Bear, what's up, buddy? Point two. The spirit-empowered leader knows the true gospel. The spirit-empowered leader knows the true gospel. Look at verse 3. Let's read verse 3 again just to make sure we have our bearings. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Error, impurity, or any attempt to deceive. Now let me tell you real quick. He talks about three things there about his appeal and where it springs from or does not spring from. I'm going to address impurity next week. I think all of verses 5 and 6 are addressing that impurity. So I'm not going to talk about today. Today I'm only going to talk about error and attempt to deceive. And really only error. So uh, in essence, what, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, uh, I'm not deceived in my preaching of the gospel, nor am I trying to deceive you. Okay? But let's just zero in on that error. Uh, this word error, Paul uses it throughout the rest of the New Testament to refer to those who have been deceived. So let me just give you two examples. Open up your Bibles with me. Turn to James chapter 5, verse 20. Now, uh, different translations might have this differently. Uh, I'm using the NIV, even though we read the ESV corporately together. I'm reading the NIV version of this because... The Greek word is the same, but in English it uses the word error. So I just want to show you from that version. But you can still follow along with me. James chapter 5, verse 20. He says this, Remember this, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. So here, James is saying that sin is what deceives people, right? It leads them into error, and then they live in error. Or turn with me to 1 John, just a few pages over. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. Talking about himself as an apostle, John says, We are from God. 
Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Right? So we're out here as apostles. We're preaching the gospel. People are listening to us. Some people aren't listening to us. Some people are coming into the truth. Some people are deceived. And there is a spirit leading us into each one of those. The spirit of the Lord and the spirit of Satan. And we're going to talk more about that spirit in a second. Now, if you look at the rest of verse 3, excuse me, back in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, listen, we know that you have been chosen by God. And now in chapter 2, he's saying, and you know that we are preachers of the true gospel. You know that our ministry to you is authentic. Friends, this seems like a good time for me to just stop and remind everyone here that there is, in fact, only one true gospel. That may be the most heretical thing you can say in our society today, that there is only one truth. To say that there's a a version of the truth, well, that's a little bit more palatable. To say that your truth is equally valid with my truth, now, now we're getting somewhere. That's the gospel of our modern age. You have your truth, I have my truth. No one's truth is above anyone else's. This is just not really in line with the way that God talks about the gospel in his word. So take, for example, the book of Jude. I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith, and that word faith is just used synonymously there with the gospel, to contend for the faith, all the contents of the gospel, that was once for all delivered to the saints. Right? There's that same delivery language, that same ambassador language. It's the language of God gave it to us as it is. Don't mess, it, mess with it. Don't touch it. Don't try to alter it. Don't try to change it. It's been delivered to us once and for all. You can consider the words of Paul as he wrote to the Galatians. A false gospel had begun to creep into the church there. Listen carefully. Listen. Listen to the language that Paul uses. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel. So do notice the language he uses there. To turn to a different gospel is to desert Christ. Not that there is another gospel. So in Paul's mind, there's one gospel. These other gospels, they're just masquerading as gospels. There's the diet mountain lightning in the soda aisle. There's only one Mountain Dew. Amen. And he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So Paul says, listen, if we come back and we were like, yeah, hey, we got that whole gospel message wrong, instead of going, okay, Paul, you're an apostle, got it, you're supposed to say, no, apostle, get out of here, you're a false teacher. Then he says in verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. So there's one true gospel, and then there's all these counterfeit gospels, and they are contrary, that's the word that Paul uses, to the one true gospel. Now, many professing Christians today, they balk at the idea that my understanding of the gospel and your understanding of the gospel may be different and that one of us is wrong in our understanding of the gospel. We think it's the height of humility to say things like, well, maybe we're both right. 
Friends, that's, that's just silly. It, it can't be true. Law of non-contradiction. It can't be A and not A at the same time. How dare you correct me on my understanding of the gospel? We think it's humble to say, yeah, we can, we can find room for different gospels. Friends, that's not humility. That is high-handed arrogance and rebellion. True humility says, Lord, I receive the gospel that you have delivered to me once and for all. Now, lest you think I'm being too hard on people who try to make room for different gospels, notice that the Apostle Paul is equally hard on people who accommodate false gospels. Just another example from his second letter to the Corinthians. (laughs) He feels like such a dad right here. I love this language. He says, for if someone comes and proclaims a Jesus other than the one we proclaimed, or a different gospel than the one that you accepted, you put up with it too easily. You put up with it. You tolerate it. You say we need a moratorium. We need a time of silence to consider all of our options. Instead of saying, no, friend, that is not the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is information, and it's either accurate news or it's not. It's either true or it's false. Either Jesus really did walk this earth or he didn't. He either lived a perfectly righteous life or he sinned in some way. He either went to the cross and took the Father's wrath for the sins of us and all those that he saved, or we are still lost and dead in our sins. He's either resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father as our advocate right here, right now, or I don't know what. Maybe Bill Maher's right. This is just a big book of Jewish fairy tales if Christ is still in the grave. Paul says that his gospel does not spring from error. Right? He's not deceived. And in his preaching of the gospel, he is not deceiving anyone. But friends, you should know that there are many deceivers. Many deceivers have gone out into the world That's what 2 John tells us in chapter 1, verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now, he wrote that 2,000 years ago. Do you think that deception has gotten better or worse? The world is full of deceivers. The Bible talks about them as false prophets, wolves, even antichrists. John calls false teachers antichrists. Why does he call them that? Because Christ came to tell us the truth about ourselves and to lead us into truth, and to give us life. And these antichrists, they come, and they preach a gospel that springs from error. And they're trying to deceive us. And they're leading us to death. But the spirit-empowered leader is empowered by God to communicate the one true gospel. And it is only the power of the spirit in Paul's life that makes him feel confident that he is not in any way deceived about the content of his gospel. Now, I told you that our, this morning's scripture reading had a lot to do with this sermon. Do you see it now? Remember Paul went up to the apostles and he was like, hey guys, I'm an apostle too. <laughs> Can I be a part of your club? No, he's like, yeah, listen, here's my understanding of the gospel. Does it line up with your understanding of the gospel? And they were like, no, yeah, that's the gospel. And they blessed him and said, all right, man, keep going, doing what you're doing. Take the gospel to the Gentiles. But even the way that Paul talks about that, he's not like, man, I sure hope that they accepted me. 
He was like, no, I was called by Christ. I'm indwelled by the Spirit. I know that I'm preaching the right gospel. It's been said of the Holy Spirit that he is the forgotten God. In some circles, I'm sure that that's true. I think it might be a bit of an overstatement. I don't think it's true in this church. But friends, it must never be true in this church. Because it is only by the Holy Spirit's power that we as a church can have confidence that we know the one true gospel. We know that it is the role of the Holy Spirit to lead us, not just as individuals, but as a church, into the truth of the gospel. Listen, <coughs> listen to Jesus say this very thing, John 14, 26. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Or again in John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears from the Father, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. As ambassadors, how can we know? How can we know that the gospel that we're preaching doesn't spring from error? Well, because the Holy Spirit secures the delivery of the accurate gospel to us from heaven. Now, Paul can say that this gospel that he preaches doesn't spring from error, but what about you? I mean, listen, I understand that the Holy Spirit does his work in us and helps us to make sure that we understand the gospel, but that's not like a, you know, it's not an instantaneous thing. The Spirit often works gradually in our lives. There's, there's a process. If you've joined this church, you've experienced that in some way. We've, in our membership interview, asked you, do you understand the gospel? We've walked through our statement of faith, which articulates the main points of the gospel. You hear the gospel preached every week in this church, and you're growing in your understanding of the gospel. But the reason why that process is necessary is because you probably have received some mixture of error from your life in this fallen world and the fallen beliefs and worldviews that surround you that pollute your understanding of the gospel. So it's possible that some of your understanding of the gospel comes from your past experience. Maybe it comes from your emotions. Maybe it comes from the culture. Maybe it comes from false teachers. If you're still watching TBN or reading, well, any book that's published at the bookstore by Christian authors. I'm kidding, kind of. Maybe your understanding of the gospel is polluted by your tradition. Maybe your understanding of the gospel is even now being polluted by the American political arena. Maybe your understanding of the gospel has been too heavily influenced by the philosophy department. Maybe it's just your own moral intuition. Friends, none of us can have a perfect understanding of the gospel, not in the way that God does. There's two problems. One, the gospel's big. It's like a jewel that has a thousand facets. At any moment, we can only see any number of those facets. On top of that, we're not perfect observers. Sin blinds us. It distorts things. We don't see things as we ought to see them. Can any of us ever understand the gospel in its entirety? No. But can we understand enough of the gospel to make sure that we're not in error? Well, absolutely. The Holy Spirit is simultaneously turning the jewel of the gospel, allowing you to see its many facets. 
and he's wiping away the junk in your eyes or giving you glasses or whatever metaphor I need to use here to communicate the idea that he's helping you to better see. Not only is he making the gospel more clear to you in itself, but he's also allowing you to perceive it as he is sanctifying you and getting rid of your sin and making you more like Jesus. In closing, I just want to remind you, friends, that this is one of the benefits of what we do as a church. Every week, we come back together and we rehearse the one true gospel. I was, uh, I was talking with a member of our church recently who was talking with one of his children who said, like, on Wednesday nights, why do we always do, like, the same review questions, right? Because review is the most important part of making sure that we actually understand something. Right, so every week as we come together as a church, we rehearse this gospel message. Some weeks we look at this facet a little bit longer and a little bit more intently. Some weeks we look at that facet, and we're probably never going to cover all of them, but we certainly try. But every week we come back together and we rehearse the gospel so that we can have confidence that the Spirit is with us, empowering our role as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So I think perhaps maybe the most fitting way for me to end the service is to remind you that on the back of your service guide, if you go ahead and grab it, if you have one, if you don't, uh, maybe we can pull it up on the screen. Cohen, is it up on the screen there, buddy? Yeah, we just have the gospel here every week, just in case you forgot and you wanted to read through it one more time. Let me remind us again, brothers and sisters, of the gospel message. The gospel is the joyous declaration. And Father, forgive us for the times that we make it seem like it's an angry declaration. I am guilty. The gospel is a joyous declaration. It's good news that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he commands everyone everywhere to repent from sin and to trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law and rebelling against his rule. And the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son Jesus to live for his people's sake the perfect obedient life that God requires and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And on the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave, having defeated sin and hell and death, and now he reigns in heaven, offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of their sins and trust solely in him for salvation. If you're here this morning and you have not done that, allow me to appeal to you. Turn from your sin, trust in Christ, and be reconciled to God. Let me pray. Father, we need you. We need you every second of every day. We need your son We need his advocacy. We need his perpetual cleansing by his once-for-all sacrifice. And we need all of these things to be applied to our lives by the power of your Spirit. Make the gospel real to us, Lord, as we leave here today. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.